Amen. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you for saying that with me. Uh, one more time, Merry Christmas, everybody. All right, well, as we get started this morning, I want everybody to know I've got some uh, good news for you. Also got some bad news for you, all right? Good news and bad news. Which one do you want first? Everybody wants bad news first, but I'm not going to do that, okay? <laughs> let, let, let's start with good news, okay? Good news is that you are wildly, unconditionally loved. Good news is you can't do anything ever to deserve this love or lose this love. There is no brake pedal you can put on it. This love coming from God is flowing towards you 24-7, whether you are aware of it or not. That's good news, right? Bad news. Bad news is, for whatever reason, it is consistently difficult for humans to believe the good news. Even harder to experience it and to live in that in a a day-to-day way. So it's, it's, you know, very likely that we spent part of our last week trying to drum up our own lovableness in a way that we could define or a way that we could control. So, so maybe you felt like your spiritual discipline slipped a little bit. You felt bad about that. You're like, I need to bring those back so I can subconsciously, you didn't think this out outwardly, but maybe you thought, I just need a high five from God. So I'll bring those back or I'll be better this week. If I was a little bad last week, I'll be better this week. Or There's an untold number of things you could have done to kind of take your worthy measure up a little bit with the Lord. In other words, you may have spent part of this last week trying to be in your own eyes what you already are in God's. It's a wild thought to think about. And if any of that rings true for you now or ever, then Merry Christmas. Meaning Christmas comes onto the scene at the most perfect time for all of us to just simply make the point. God really likes you incredibly more than you think he does. Now, historically, he probably was not born in December is what most historians believe. So whether it was December or March or wherever, it doesn't matter. I'm just thankful it's on repeat so that we just keeps coming back to just simply remind us, no, he really does. He, he, he came to earth and it's really good news because he wants you to experience it. He wanted people to actually hold him and see him, be touched by him, to experience him. It's the whole point of the incarnation, the whole point of Christmas. Now, as a preacher though, I'm often asked, what are the hardest sermon topics you ever have to preach about? People are thinking I'm gonna say like end times theology, gifts of the spirit, the debated stuff. You wanna know the toughest stuff I preach on is? Thanksgiving, Easter, Christmas. Because you already know what I'm gonna say before I start talking about it. Anybody think I was gonna talk about the judgment seat of Christ today on December 4th? I mean, at thankfulness, I mean, at Thanksgiving we talk about thankfulness. On Easter we talk about the death and resurrection. So at Christmas we talk about the birth of Christ, right? You already know we're probably going to say it's about some angels, wise men still seek him, uh, shepherds, right? I can't be like, and dinosaurs. Y'all didn't know that, but they were there. I can't pull up some secretive material that I've been hiding all these years. It, the story is what it is. So my, my question for you and, and me in the midst of all of this is this. How do we all hear what we know we're going to hear like we've never heard it? That's a good question, isn't it? Everybody's like, good luck, preacher. How do we all hear what we know we're gonna hear like we've never heard it before? 
Now, I'm hoping that you will learn some things in this series that we're gonna do over the next few weeks together. But the message of Christmas is really simple. God came to the most outrageous of circumstances to prove that he loves you in an outrageous way. And my question today is not, have you heard that? My question is, how much on a daily basis do you experience it? And if you're not experiencing it for a while, don't feel any shame about that. Just come back next week because that's what I'm going to talk about next week in the midst of what we all, all go through. I'm just asking, how much is our MO we really feel enjoyed by God? Despite our sin and our complexities, our brokenness, our insecurities, our immaturity, the fact that we have to hear stuff over and over and over and over and still don't catch it, and in the midst of all of that, God goes, yep, I pick you. That's what Christmas proves. So I'm hoping that throughout this series and through December, God could be nudging you not just to come to church and add some more Christmas trivia to your database, but add some more revelation to your soul. Because every child who's ever been born was all born, you included, with an inner ache to be loved, except one. One came, and while he needed to be nurtured and fed and kept alive, at least for a certain amount of time, he came to erase all doubt and to fill that inner ache in all of mankind. That blows my mind. That's what we're asking. Are we able to experience that? And that's why we're doing this series. What child is this that could fill that inner ache in you and in me? So that's where we're going to be going over the next few weeks. And so, but my prayer is we won't just get that. We're going to just be soaking in the love of God while we're here the next few weeks. But my prayer is it won't just be us who get this. My prayer is we'll give this away to other people. Last year, we did an amazing initiative called Adopt a Family. And you got a chance to go out on that Christmas tree in the lobby and take names of people who could use some help. For example, we've got some single moms in our midst. I don't know about you, but I think single moms are the heroes of the earth and um, need to be applauded and carried. And, and some of them have just said, I'd love to make Christmas a little better at my house. Could you help? And so you can take one of their names and their families, and you can help give to them. Or we partner with prisons, and there's prisoners who've been saying, I want to give Christmas to my kids, but I can't. Could you help me? And so you could actually go out to the foyer today and be a part of this initiative, Adopt a Family. The only thing is, if you take one of those, we need you to bring the gift back next week because Christmas is coming. So we've got to make sure that we give this away to people, but we'd love for you to get a chance to be able to do that with us. All right? Y'all ready to go for What Child Is This? Um, do me a favor, would you please stand to your feet for the reading of Scripture? We're going to launch into today's message, reading from the book of Matthew. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him, and calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child. So Lord, we pray you would bless your word, and also, just like Ephesians 3 says, give us power to grasp your love, and not just grasp it, but to know it in full measure. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. You can take a seat. Thank you for standing with us there. So where do we get the name for this uh, t title of this series? Uh, most of you probably know it's a Christmas song. Is, anybody, is this their favorite, is it anybody's favorite Christmas song? What child is this? 
No, it's not mine either. It's kind of like, it's kind of a minor key, not my fave. But when I was reading Matthew chapter two, I was struck by how many times it said that phrase. It just kept saying the child. A matter of fact, it was in, we read it just two times in that little section of scripture there. You read the rest of the chapter nine times. It refers to Jesus as the child. So like if you go to verse nine, it, it says this. Is it verse nine? Am I lying? Verse nine. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen in its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. Go to verse 11. It says, on entering the house, they saw the child. It just keeps happening over and over again. So we're going to answer that question, why it keeps saying the child today. But that's not where this story starts. The story actually starts with the king. The first six words of Matthew chapter two say, in the time of King Herod, okay? Turn to your neighbor and list all the facts together you can about King Herod. Ready, go. <laughs> y'all are lucky y'all sat by yourself so you don't have to do this. Okay. You might be like, okay, wait a minute. Think he killed some babies. He killed Apostle Paul. You, you're, you're, this is a little bit of a trick question. The reason is when you read the scriptures, there's six different Herods that get brought up in our Bible. There's a lot of them. So you may get can, kind of confused as to what they actually did. So let me just tell you a little bit about this King Herod because he inaugurated a dynasty that these six Herods all fulfilled and participated in. But it started with him. And a matter of fact, he was born of noble birth, and then he quickly ascended the ranks of political uh, leadership. He was actually a fantastic architect and, and pioneering builder. Um, to this day, stones that he helped construct in the temple still exist. But he wasn't just a builder, he was also a military powerhouse. He was known as a political genius as well. I mean, we've all heard of Caesar, right? Caesar got word that a guy named Mark Antony was starting to conspire against him. He was actually conspiring with Herod against Caesar. Caesar caught it, killed Mark Antony. Herod called a meeting with Caesar and somehow convinced him that he needed him as the king. And so he let him keep leading. I mean, he was such a force of nature that he was given a title by people at that time, Herod the Great. So Herod the Great has not died yet, and everybody thinks he's an absolute legend. But in those days, you didn't become the great by being like a politician who just kissed babies and hugged people. He wasn't a cuddly teddy bear. He was actually a brute beast. Historians differ over whether he had 10 or 11 wives, but what they know is the one he had the most affection for, he began to get suspicious that she had political aspirations, so he killed her. And didn't just kill her, killed his mother-in-law and two brothers-in-law. Two of his own sons he killed in order to keep power, and he kept power for 40 years. I mean, it got so crazy that at one point, his barber stepped in and tried to defend his two sons and said, take it easy on him. So you know what he did? Killed his barber. That's exactly right. I mean, this guy was an absolute lunatic. At one point, Caesar made the remark, you would be better off being Herod's pig than being Herod's son. Why? Five days before Herod dies, he's on his deathbed. He hears that one of his sons is making preparation to take the throne. So he killed that son. 
And then they read his will on the day he died, and it instructed that prominent Israelites all over the city be killed so that there would be weeping and grief on the day of his death. Psycho, lunatic. But he was considered by Rome to be one of the most effective leaders over, the, over Israel that the empire had ever seen. So they gave him another title, and it was this, King of the Jews. And no other political leader would ever hold that title except one. And you probably know who that is. So after hearing all of that I just said, I wonder if anything you just read when you were standing leaves you a little speechless, or maybe I should say dumbfounded. Go back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened? The barber killer? How, how does this happen? I mean, this makes zero sense. I mean, I'm, let me just do my best. I, I kept thinking, how can I paint this picture? Most Americans don't know this, but there's this soccer tournament going on in the world called the World Cup, all right? <laughs> My family loves soccer. They all play. All my kids play. Jackson, only one that still does for his intramural team. America did a good job, got out in the knockout round, but um, Argentina is still in, and they have one of the best players in the world. Anybody know his name? Messi. Can you imagine if Messi, one of the best players in the world, pulled together his team and said, guys, I just heard that Jackson Gully is the fraternity intramural goalie. I know we beat Mexico and the best Australia had to offer. But guys, they won the championship in their intramural league. What are we gonna do? That's kind of like Herod saying, there's a child born in Bethlehem of all places and he's frightened about it. Again, what's the phrase used nine times? The child. Again, this makes no sense, especially if you understood that in that time in the ancient world, it was kind of an unspoken status ladder. I guess every world has one of those. Um, but they had a very clear status ladder that most people knew started with gods. Everybody had a god. There was no such thing as an atheist back in those days. Everybody had a God. You just picked a different God. And they were all revered. Everybody had different gods, but they were revered. Right next to them was kings. I wish I could have raised this. Like It's like they were basically seen as semi-divine because kings and kings alone were actually made in the image of their God. Nobody else was. And then under kings, you had members of their court. Maybe spiritual leaders would have fit in there as well. And then you had business people, craftsmen and artisans. And underneath business people, you had women. I'm sorry, ladies, but at that time, they were pretty far down the chain because they were often uneducated and pretty much just seen as baby makers, which means that the babies that they made would fall a little lower on the status ladder and then under them would simply just be slaves and the poor. I mean, the reason they are so far down here is because they weren't made in the image of the God. They were just made by some inferior gods. So I hope you're catching this just a little bit and seeing that wherever you fall on this ladder, there's still a long way to go. A big gap between where you are and where gods are 
And there's a big dignity gap in there that you've got to make up. And good luck to you if you're a child. So how is Herod the Great scared of a child? We don't know this for certain, but it could be that Jesus could have been referred to by a pretty negative term. The term is mamzer. This was the word used for people who were born to parents who weren't married. And if it was found out that you were with child before you were married, this is the word they would call you. Every culture has a word for this. None of them pretty. And maybe you've been called that. You know the sting of shame and labels that are given. So how is Herod the Great scared of a poor mamzer child? The scriptures are stunning and they bring us to this moment. But that is your backdrop. Now I want you to look at the wildly intentional and maybe quite controversial wording that Gabriel uses in Luke chapter 1. The angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be what? Great. I mean, at first thought, if I'm honest, I'd be like, out of all of the words that this angel can choose from across all the languages of the world, he chooses great. That's kind of weird to me. Like husbands, what if I said to you, go back to the day you got married. You haven't seen your fiance since the night before. The doors open. She comes down in stunning beauty. What did she look like? And if you were like, I mean, great. (laughs) Couch time. I mean, how is that gonna go over in your house, right? Ordinarily, you would just think, there's gotta be a better word we could use than great. It'd be a slap in the face to use that phrase. But in this specific moment, Gabriel is throwing a a shot across the bow. And he's saying, greatness is about to be redefined, Mary. Now, this would have been quite controversial. Why? Because the definitive biography Years later, there would be written about King Herod. This is the title, okay? Look at this book cover. Herod, king of the Jews and friend of the Romans. I mean, that is his definitive biography. That was used to describe him years and years later. So you just have to wonder if Gabriel knows this book's gonna be written. And he's looking at a time in history at the moment and looking at the future of what Herod's legacy will be. And he's like, listen, Right now, you may live in a time, Mary, where people fear the throne and the reign of King Herod, and rightly so. But he's been given these titles by mere men, not by God. You're about to have a child that's going to change the course of human history. So in verse 32, he says, he'll be great and will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David. Why is that word throne so important? Because one day that throne is gonna topple. It's gonna take about six Herods, but eventually it's gonna topple, and guess what's gonna happen to Herod? He's going to die. Matthew wanted you to get this so much in his chapter that we just read that three times he says, and Herod died. Then Herod died because Herod died. He wants you to know Herod's going to move from Herod the Great to Herod the Dead. So Gabriel's kind of making the point, are you really great if you die and stay dead? He's like throwing this little prophetic shot out there because someone's coming. 
And that won't be his fate. He won't do that. And Mary's going to be like, but everybody knows about the great. And Gabriel could have been like, well, go to Antioch on December 4, 2022. They won't remember two things about him. But the one in your womb, he continues on in verse 32, and he says, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So eventually the thrones are going to topple, but Mary, this son of yours is not going to do that by brute force. By love, kindness, and gentleness, he's actually going to come like a child. And all these people who were singing, how great thou art. I know that in your day and age, children aren't that great. But there will be a day where this child will redefine greatness. People will finally catch it and they will start singing, how great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. And all will see how great is our God. And people will cry, they'll be standing up and Mary's like, about my kid? Yeah, Mary, about your kid. So Herod has every reason in the world to be frightened. Some versions say disturbed by what he heard. Why? Because this child is about to come and completely upend the order of society as they know it. And mankind's gonna be disrupted by what? A child. Now, one of the reasons this might be really hard for all of us to grasp is because if you're a Christian or even if you're a Jew, if you've walked in your faith for a while, there's some scriptures that play in your head from the Old Testament. They just are a part of your psyche. You hear them all the time, especially if you've ever gone to a baby dedication. So they don't even really mean that much to us. They do, but we don't like wake up every day going, yay, Psalm 139 is just for me, okay? You may not even know what Psalm 39 says, but basically what it says is a reality that is second nature to you, but was not second nature to most in the Roman world. For it was you, God, who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. Anybody heard this scripture before? Raise your hand if you've heard this. See, this plays in your psyche more than you know. More than you know, up here somewhere in your brain stratosphere are these two thoughts. I'm made by God and I'm made in the image of God. And that's specifically something that the Jewish people were given to hold on to from the book of Genesis on. That was their norm. But that was not the norm of the Romans in the first century. If you were a baby born to a king, yes, you were made in the image of God. And so we'd have your Lion King moment if your child was born. And we'd hold your baby up and everybody would sing. Whatever that, I don't even know how that goes. But anyway, we would all sing that like the Baylor games when we hold up the kid. We would all do that. It'd be beautiful. But just one gets that song. Nobody else gets that. Thank God I don't have to sing that for everybody else. Ordinary kids don't get that song. And here's actually the truth. If Jesus had not been born a Jew, if he had been born a Roman, it's really likely he may not have been born at all. Because we know from the scriptures that when Joseph finds out that his fiance Mary is pregnant, he's not sure he wants this child. And in the Roman days, there was a practice that happened for those that did not want their child. They could actually end the life of their child. The practice was actually called exposure. I've talked about this before. This practice still stuns me when I read about it. I studied more about it this past couple weeks. It just stuns me that it was legal 
in the Roman Empire for the head of the household to have complete authority to decide who lived or who died in their home. I mean, that's really scary for me. I've had some bad weeks, you know what I mean? You know, I can't imagine, like, bad day. Never mind, you're done, you know? Like, maybe there were no prodigal kids in those days. They were like, yeah, just take them out. Like, I don't know how they handled it. it but it usually happened in the first eight days of life. If a child was born with a defect, you could expose it. If you didn't have enough money to feed another mouth, expose it. If it was a girl and you didn't want another girl, you needed a boy to continue helping around the house or helping in your family line, you could take that kid to the edge of the woods, put him on a dump or on a dung hill, and you could expose them, leave them there. And it wasn't, te- it wasn't technically murder because if the fates allowed it, that child could survive. But really, it didn't matter anyway because children were so drastically inferior in Herod's kingdom. See, in Herod's kingdom, only the ruthless survived and the most dominant were praised. So if you wanted access into that kingdom, then you just have to make sure you stay ruthless <laughs> and you've got to make sure you stay at the, at the top of society because those are the ones that are desired. They're the ones that are loved. They're the ones that are enjoyed. But if you're on the lower rungs of that ladder of society, at best, you're tolerated. At worst, you're exposed. Enter Jesus' biography. His biography, he didn't get the title that Herod got. King of the Jews, friend of the Romans. You know why? Because he wasn't a friend of the Romans. He had a different title. It was friend of sinners. Jesus had a completely different access point into his kingdom. And some of you came to church today for this one novel thought that Jesus' biography read, King of the Jews, friend of sinners. Because for some of us, it's hard to actually access and walk in the love of God because of our sin. We lose our temper, something we've done years ago that we still kind of like shake our head, can't believe we did it, something we, we... We just wish we were not as defective as we are. And you just needed to come to church to be reminded that stuff actually makes you a friend of Jesus. Like that's a kind of upending thought. Now, you might have some sin police that's playing in your head 24-7, reminding you of all that you are not. There was a sin police in Jesus' day too. It just wasn't Jesus. Another group of people called the Pharisees, they took that title on. And they made sure you knew that there was a status ladder and that you had a lot of work to do to break that dignity gap. And Jesus comes along to absolutely destroy that. And so the Pharisees didn't like that. So they called him the friend of sinners. They used it to mock him. He wore it as a badge of honor because his kingdom was available to all sinners, just on one condition. You had to come like a child. Anybody just kind of getting thrown off right now? Why would he say that? That's the very bottom of society's ladder. This is crazy talk. Both the Latin and the Greek term for child actually comes up with the phrase, not speaking. And it didn't mean that they were too young to talk. It meant there was no way they could reason with a mature adult. So why Would they carry any value whatsoever? It doesn't make sense. 
unless you're Jesus. And then he comes along and he rebukes the disciples for kind of getting into the empire's way of thinking. Remember the moment, Matthew chapter 19, people are trying to bring their kids to Jesus for their own baby dedication. And the disciples rebuke all these parents. So what does Jesus do? He rebukes the disciples. And then, a chapter earlier, he gets asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, what he said, you probably already know the answer. If you're standing in Herod's court right now, this would have made your mouth drop. Probably laugh like, this is ridiculous. But Jesus is gonna make a point. Remember, he's going to redefine greatness. In Matthew chapter 18, verse two and three, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There is no record of anyone else, but politically, especially, not even rabbis using children as a reference point for conversion. And he's saying, unless you change, which by the way, you can't do on your own. We're gonna need the Holy Spirit to do that work inside of us. But there's this process of becoming like little children. Why? Are children necessarily noble? Maybe yours are, I don't know. Are they innocent? Eight, nine-year-old children, are they innocent? Parents are looking over their kids right now going, remembering the stories, right? How about sinless? Heck no. Again, maybe yours are, I just got different kids, I guess. That didn't happen. He's not making that point. Come be like kids who are noble and innocent and sinless. He's just providing examples to say, come be like this one who cannot make themselves great because they are utterly dependent on another. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like eventually get worn out by people who need me all the time. Jesus says, I want you to come and need me all the time. Some of you think you're tolerated by God because you need him all the time. And he's like, no, that's what I did. I put a child in the middle. Don't you remember? He said, be dependent like that one. Be utterly dependent on another. Again, Maybe your kids are noble, innocent, and sinless. I love my four kids. That's just not words I would use. As a matter of fact, I was a college pastor here for 11 years, and I led a spring break trip we do every year called Awaken. First day of Awaken, either Jimmy, our pastor, who's in Washington, D.C. today, um, or myself would preach a message called the Father Heart of God. If you were part of my college ministry, you probably remember that because me and Jimmy pretty much did the same sermon every single time, told the same stories every single time. And when I would go into my classic Father Heart of God story, there's two descriptions. One, everybody would be like, oh, because college students love it and talk about the family. And then my kids would just roll their eyes and be like, if I hear this stupid story one more time, I'm going to go crazy. They're going to do it today. But I would still tell it. I would tell the day when my wife gets a phone call while she is eight months pregnant with our third child that there's some high school girls that she loves that are going to, that have, are going to spend the day out by their pool. I don't, most eight-month-old, eight-month pregnant wives don't want to go get the pool, but she said she would come and spend time with them. So she does. When she got there, she said, now my four-year-old and my three-year-old don't know how to swim. Do any, so y'all are going to help me with this one. And one of the girls said, oh yeah, I'm a lifeguard. If it falls in, then when it falls in, we're great. They get to talking, Annalie and Jackson are running around the pool. And then there's this moment that went off in Annalie's head, like, I wonder what would happen if I just pushed Jackson. 
So on the opposite end of where everybody is, Annalie just went poop. And my swimless son just head first into the water. And lifeguard girl completely freezes, doesn't know what to do. By the way, that happens, what you do? Okay, she froze. So my eight month pregnant wife stands up, fully dressed, runs around the pool, dives to the bottom of the pool to pull up her son, gasping for air while my daughter is profusely apologizing. I'm so sorry, I didn't want to kill Jackson. So she gets out of the water. There's towels wrapped all around her and I get a phone call at work. We're gonna need to talk tonight. So I didn't actually totally know what happened. I get home and they're telling me this story over dinner and Jackson's like, yeah, you pushed me in the pool. You did that, you know? And so not noble response. Blair says, but Annalie has a question she wants to ask you, daddy. And I'll never forget right where she was sitting. And she looked up at me. She, kept, she couldn't even really look me in the eye. And she just said, do you still love me, daddy? It's one of those moments that if you're not there to answer the question, the question lingers forever. But to be able to put her on my lap and say, honey, you can never do anything to diminish my love for you was one of the most powerful moments. And we would talk all types of stuff, all kinds of sermons and stories. Inevitably, at the end of the week, my kids are rolling their eyes that they have to hear the Annalie push Jackson in the pool story one more time. And people are stopping me going, out of everything you said, that story is my life. I don't know why I still live with this nagging feeling that I'm the pusher into the pool person. And that somebody has to come in and rescue me over and over again. And it's just... I'm sick of that. You know why? Because again, you don't know this, but you live consistently with your own social ladder in your mind. There's an ideal person of who you should be. Been to church twice, you already know what that is. Or if you got a good mom, you know what that is. But then there's the disappointing reality of who you actually are. In between that is a massive dignity gap of your own making. You could call it a shame gap. I almost had a whole series on shame. The truth of the matter is most of us don't think we deal with shame. I didn't. And I had some pretty dark places in the last couple of years. I remember sitting with my counselor and him saying, I think we need to go after shame. And I was like, I'm not trying to be prideful. It's just not my thing. He's like, okay, let's go a different direction. Do you have conversations that play in your head consistently wishing you to said different things or done different things at a different point in your life? It's like, yeah. Well, do you walk around with self-talk in your head like, dang it, get your act together. I was like, about every hour. Do you look back at old scenarios wondering why you can't get it together? Gully, you should get it together. Like, yeah, and he goes, that's called shame. I, I was like, oh, it is? I just, I just kind of thought everybody had that. It's like, they do. But guilt says you did something wrong. Shame says something is wrong with you. And I remember saying, then put your hand right here and just break that off. And he's like, that's not the way it works. There's a spiritual dynamic to this thing. But you know the way shame goes? I never forgot this. He said, the way shame is removed is when someone you see through the lens of dignity turns and puts honor on you. Shame is broken when someone you see through the lens of dignity turns and puts honor on you. That's how this physiological, psychological thing called shame begins to break and the gap can continue to be healed. This hit me. So I can't break shame myself. 
I can't make myself feel better. I can only come as a child and be utterly dependent on another to put dignity on me. Jesus concludes his little parable moment in verse four. Therefore, whoever takes the lonely, you get to be a part of the whoever today. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he closes society's gap, society's ladder. And he said, that's not what my kingdom is all about. You see, Jesus came to flip the entire script and say whether you are born in a manger or a palace, you are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. Can you imagine what it did to the dregs of society to hear you're not just tolerated, you're actually wanted and loved. You have a Jesus, a God who is pursuing you. You're the object of his pursuit. How do you know? Because on planet Earth, he pursued women, children, fishermen, leaders, followers, poor, rich, old, young, sick, healthy. That should just about include everybody in the room. And to make sure you got the point, he made sure that at your vacation Bible school at a young age, you understood that he would summarize that at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. And again, I'm not asking you if you know that verse. I'm asking you, do you experience it? If I could count how many times in this last semester I've had the same conversation over and over with people, that is, I believe God is worthy. I will never back down from that. I will follow him with my whole life. If you're asking me, do I feel he enjoys me? That's a completely different thing. And that's the thing I wanted to go after for in a series called What Child Is This? Because I need you to understand that you're kind of like Annalise sitting on God's lap going, do you still love me? And he is looking at you going, oh, did you think you could do something to shift that? This love isn't about you. It's about who I am. First John 4, God is love. He can't be anything that he's not. He can't change who he is. So with that, I want to kind of bring this message to a close. And if you have stuff in your lap, I want you to put it to the side so that you can kind of engage in this last moment with us. Um, in a minute, we're going to sing a song called Reckless Love. I have to be honest, when I first heard that song, I had a love-hate relationship with it. I liked the tune, kind of builds at the end, you can kind of get into it. I had a hard time with this phrase, reckless love. Because I don't think God's love is nonchalant, flippant, and reckless. It didn't make sense to me, and I couldn't find scriptural ammunition for how it would fit, and that's usually what we do before we sing songs, and I couldn't find the Bible verse. I didn't get it, and I heard the writer of the song, Corey Asbury, say that he wrote this song while meditating on the story of the shepherd who left the 99 to go find the one. And out of great love, he would go and find that sheep. And then he said this, that in doing so, it would be for the interest of the sheep, but it would not be in his own best interest as a shepherd. It could be dangerous. It could be risky, waste time and energy. This was not about a love that is reckless towards the sheep. It's reckless towards himself. 
That's the gospel, is that you have a God who did not come to self-preserve, but to give himself away. His love was reckless towards himself. He took your sin, your shame, your punishment you deserved on himself and offered you forgiveness and love that you do not deserve, but have an inner ache for. So when you sing that song, before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. It's, that's scriptural. And when you sing about a reckless love, that's scriptural too, because it's the gospel story being told back to you. But before we just stand up, and I, I, I know how to do this. I could like charge it and charge it and build it. James Mark could build it. We could get the whole thing going. You could stand up. No mountain, he won't. I could get you there. That's not what I want to do. I want to go back to where we started. And I just want to ask you, not do you know this, I'm asking you, do you feel like that's your experience right now? that God likes you. Like he sees you and he smiles at you. So over the next couple of minutes, we're just gonna have a couple of slides that say that. And I want you just to interact with these slides. I want you just to look at their words and, and let them just wash over you and ask the question, do I believe this or do I not? If not, God, why do I not? Just be a child. Let God be God. And just stay focused on that. Now, some of you, when this comes up, you're going to be like, oh, this is just like some self-help affirmations. I am not trying to do that. Affirmations are just trying to you convince yourself of something. This is not you standing there in the front of the mirror going, doggone it, people like me. That's not what I'm trying to take you into. This is a scriptural reference. reference. That's where I started when I prayed for you at the beginning, that you would have power to grasp how long and wide and high and deep, not just to grasp it, but to know it. And Lord, that's our prayer today. Our prayer today, God, is that we would have power to grasp and to know and to be bowled over with the wild, outrageous enjoyment of God. In Jesus' name.